everyone you are listening to the podcast in conversation with IPR and competition law i am aditya trivedi founder and head of the podcast and let's welcome our guest for today's episode dr ambar dar lecturer in competition law university of manchester school of law welcome ma'am thank you very much for having me thank you ma'am for accepting our invite and today we'll be discussing her newly launched book competition law in south asia policy diffusion and transfer Let me introduce you all to our esteemed guest Dr Ambardar is lecturer in competition law University of Manchester School of Law and a teaching fellow and senior research fellow at UCL Center for Law Economics and Society University College London where she focuses in the areas of competition law law and development comparative law intellectual property rights and company law she is particularly interested in redefining frontiers between international human rights such as right to health and right to food and competition law she is also interested in legal issues arising from the south asian region particularly india and pakistan particularly in the areas of competition and constitution law ma'am we are glad to have you back we earlier hosted with you a podcast on competition law and policy in south asia and now we are back Uh, with the similar topic but maybe with newer dimensions as we have a book in hand a newly launched book uh, by you and we'll be discussing about the book we would like to know more about the book from you so that we know the competition law regimes uh, how they are functioning in south asia thank you aditya thank you for having me again and i think this is an excellent platform to reach a wider audience and also to uh, to speak of south asia as a region rather than just to speak of individual countries uh, within south asia having said that of course the book talks about individual countries as well and as we go through our discussion uh, i'll be able to highlight those issues uh, sure ma'am let us start discussion uh, so the upcoming book the competition law in south asia policy diffusion and transfer has a very fascinating title could you please elaborate on what do you mean by the terminology policy policy diffusion and transfer with regard to the book yes that's a that's a good place to start this discussion um you know the south asian region uh, comprises of eight countries uh, india sri lanka pakistan nepal bangladesh maldives and also bhutan and afghanistan and this definition is really uh, this composition rather is taken from the the composition recognized by sarc which is the south asian association for regional cooperation um these countries have a lot of cultural similarities as well they have historical and legal similarities also uh, but what was really interesting from my perspective was to see that when it comes to economic laws of which competition law is also uh, one these countries largely borrow from western developed legal regimes so instead of necessarily developing their own laws on uh, complex economic topics they're um, guided by the world bank and the um, imf sometimes the adb sometimes other the wto has played a very significant role and these laws then get uh, transferred to uh, to the to the, indiv- the the individual countries in the region the reason i used the idea of diffusion and policy transfer was to actually capture 
the circumstances in which the laws are uh, adopted but also the motivations for which these laws are adopted the mechanisms through which these laws are adopted to understand how these laws might um be implemented uh, in these countries and and the existing legal framework that the legal um, theory that i would have looked at to study the adoption of laws um Uh, was not in my view sufficient to address this sort of multi-dimensional um background in which the adoption takes place and therefore i turned to the concept the, the the theories of diffusion and transfer to really understand develop a holistic understanding of how these laws came to uh, be in uh, individual countries what the motivations were what the conditions were in which they got transferred and then to um, really make some predictions uh, about how they were likely to be uh, enforced in each of the countries thank you ma'am sorry i'm talking over you for a second i we can talk a little bit more about the theoretical framework going forward but at this point i think this is enough to introduce the idea yes thank you ma'am for introducing the idea about the title of the book and also a bit about the objectives of the book i would say but we'll discuss more in detail in the, through further questions so ma'am also please tell us about the contents of the book as you already told that this deals with uh, competition law regimes in south asia but uh, what exactly about it what have you included in your book and maybe about the functioning of the commissions or about the origin and development of this law or other areas that you have covered please tell the audience more about it uh thank you aditya so just i think a good place to begin is with the you know the the reason for the book really the sort of rationale for the book and uh when i was examining the south asian region i was quite struck that in the last two decades all eight of the south asian countries have adopted modern competition laws so india sri lanka pakistan nepal bangladesh and maldives have enacted statutes so india was in 2002 uh, sri lanka in 2003 pakistan and nepal in 2007 bangladesh in 2012 and maldives in um, um very recently in 2020 actually Bhutan has a competition uh, policy it had an original in 2014 and it updated it in 2020 um it they feel they're too small to need a law but even though even so they have actually invested uh, quite a bit of uh, time and energy into these policies and even Afghanistan which we consider to be a country which has you know much more pressing foundational concerns uh, also has a draft competition law since 2011 now in all these countries the you know to more or less extent the the impetus or the drive to adopt these laws or policies came from external forces and uh, having said that the countries employed different strategies and institutions for adopting these laws and this depended a lot on where the countries were themselves located um, uh, in their political lives and their legal lives at that time So the eruption took place as I said I've given you the years but then what was really further interesting to note that only two of these countries India and Pakistan were able to form you know successfully move to the enforcement stage so whilst India and Pakistan have functioning competition commissions which are enforcing these laws passing orders uh, you know hopefully uh, and we'll talk a little bit more later whether they were creating a competitive environment for in businesses or not but the other six countries 
have just not been able to move to the uh, enforcement stage so bangladesh has a competition commission but even today the commission has not passed any competition related orders uh, sri lanka has a competition and markets authority um, uh, sorry not a competition and markets authority but a consumer affairs authority uh, but even they have so they they are quite have a diverse um, ambit Uh, but they have not really uh, uh, passed any competition-related orders, even though they have a director general for competition. Um, and this was a very interesting story that I wanted to explore. So I like to think of my book as a story in nine chapters. Um, the first chapter, of course, uh, establishes the theoretical framework. So I sort of had to develop, had to go into the literature legal literature as i mentioned diffusion and transfer literature and development uh, new institutional economics literature to see can we actually develop a framework to examine the story of you know the the relationship between adoption and enforcement what happens at the adoption stage that then influences the uh, uh, the the uh, enforcement stage so so i was able to do that and that's detailed in chapter 1 um, and and the idea was that you know the transfer mechanisms the mechanisms through which countries adopt laws and the institutions that through which they adopt laws have an important impact um, on whether the laws have compatibility and uh, are have legitimacy in the adopted contexts and the extent of the compatibility and legitimacy of these laws then uh, impacts the manner in which they are enforced so chapters 2 and 3 um detail the adoption experience of the south asian countries we of course have a lot more knowledge about india and pakistan so chapter 2 focuses on india and pakistan and then chapter 3 focuses on the remaining six countries it looks at the um, preconditions of transfer in each countries the way they were engaging with uh, international bodies to uh, to adopt laws what kind of discussions if you know about those discussions what kind of discussions were taking place where the discussions were taking place were they taking place in the executive branch or were they taking place in parliament uh, what was the you know the uh, the sort of depth of the parliament was it even uh, even if it was taking up the law did it have the capacity to really understand what the law was all about so really quite a holistic and contextual approach of the adoption experience the next sort of chunk of chapters 4 5 6 and 7 examine and compare the indian and pakistani implementation experience in greater depth because as i mentioned earlier these are the only two countries that have moved to the enforcement stage so by observing their enforcement strategy we can actually uh, understand how the adoption process had linked uh, the um, the in the enforcement strategy in each country so i examine and compare this from several different perspectives i do a more sort of overview you know what are these authorities what kind of sectors they're going into are they uh, taking more so motor notices um, which means they're acting on their own initiative are they responding to complaints um, of course uh, the idea was that if they're responding to complaints that means the law has kind of resonated with the popular the stakeholders and the they're able to you know claim their rights uh, before these authorities I was also looking at how these uh, countries are interpreting the laws are they um, looking more to uh, international precedent like legal precedents are they are they just applying foreign precedents are they undertaking some sort of a domestically contextualized analysis if yes is it sufficiently anchored in economics or is it still formalistic and legalistic so so spent a lot of time looking at the enforcement strategy sorry the interpretation strategy as well 
and of course uh, to keep it uh, focused i picked up one area of the of competition enforcement which was cartels and anti competitive agreements and examined how the countries were interpreting those provisions um and hopefully the idea was that if we understand how they're enforcing the analytical tests for cartels and anti competitive agreements then we will be able to extrapolate some uh, conclusions for uh, other anti competitive activities as well and i also looked at how they devise their penal strategies like what what how would they punishing uh, you know those they found guilty of uh, anti competitive uh, practices and finally i also examined how they adopted the sort of in, you know transplanted or transferred institutions competition institutions were interacting with the pre existing courts uh, in these two countries so you know here you have a competition system which is meant to work in a particular way but then you have the courts which have their own rules and how what is that interface like and also you know examining whether that interface supports competition enforcement or does it impede competition enforcement so i did that 4 5 6 and 7 was very detailed analysis of all these issues chapter 8 then goes back to the south asian countries and as i mentioned they haven't moved to the enforcement stage but i was able then to see how they could harness some of the learnings we made from the indian pakistani comparison and inform their own uh, stages and uh, the interesting discovery here was that the um, se- several south asian countries especially bangladesh and, and uh, sri lanka and nepal had actually made some institutional progress towards uh, a, a competition uh, enforcement system but they were what in what i call it a hiatus stage they were in a limbo so they were caught between adoption and enforcement so they had adopted they had completed their process but they hadn't uh, moved to implementation but instead of looking at this hiatus stage as a failure uh, i saw it as an opportunity for these countries to to learn from their uh, counterparts within south asia and and um, you know harness their potential and really use the hiatus stage to pave the way through competition advocacy to create a culture of competition to create more information about competition which could then help future enforcement i also recognize that you know the notwithstanding the somewhat successful story of india and pakistan both india and pakistan had also been through hiatus stages and i focused on those hiatus stages in india and pakistan what stage they came at what those how those countries responded to the hiatus and how then that response helped uh, the future enforcement so really this was a story of hope also for the other six south asian countries uh, and especially those that were further along with the adoption implementation continuum the final chapter which is chapter 9 uh, sort of moves uh, beyond the story and says for the enforcement successful enforcement of these laws it is actually important to connect the enforcement with the broader economic goals uh, for which these countries adopt economic packages often competition is part of the economic reform package that they adopt and i recognize that the majority of well all our south asian countries are middle to low income countries and unless we link competition with the need for economic growth and development we will not create the synergy uh, or the rationale that is needed for meaningful enforcement and i often found that that was there was a bit of a gap in that discussion i think it's not commonly known whether competition can support 
directly or indirectly can it support uh, growth uh, and development as well so i thought it was really important to bridge that gap uh, and then that would really uh, foster enforcement um, and it was easy interesting also to recognize that the regional developments that are forcing um, the countries to think about um, uh, enforcement as well so for instance the digital economy you know, alibaba is operating in india it's also operating in pakistan um, the the platform um, uh, you know there there are platforms now that uh, uh, countries are engaging with for for instance daraz has uh, operations in in all, several of these countries and then can the operation of these platforms actually force the countries to up their game and and also to look to each other to see how competition enforcement is taking place across the board so that's really the the book in nine chapters yes thank you so much ma'am for enlisting uh, all the contents of the book telling us about all the nine chapters of the book all their themes and the the contents uh, when we understand the competition regime in south asia and you have worked on it you have written book on it do you think that when we compare south asia yes we understand that there are economical differences but when you understand the principles of competition law or say the enforcement regimes in competition law in south asia can you differentiate the regimes in south asia versus the rest of the world we have to learn a lot from mature jurisdictions but i want to comment from you on south asia versus other jurisdictions Okay, so this is a really interesting question because um, you know competition regimes are of various types all over the world. Even Europe, which seems like a monolith to us uh, when we are sitting on the outside and we we really focus on the European Commission uh, decisions, but you know we forget that it, Europe comprises of many member states and each member state has its own law, um, uh, and each member state has. you know worked out what kind of competition authority it needs should the competition authority have the powers of um you know um um investigation and prosecution adjudication and punishment as well or should it simply be investigative authority which then refers a case to the court and the court takes it up these are known as the different models the monistical dualistic models and there are other models as well you know what is the relationship between the competition regime and the courts are the courts deferential to the competition regime or they are they actually more sort of inquisitorial do they really uh, check the commission's economic analysis as well so the i mean of course the big difference between us and and eu they're very different enforcement structures so the EU, the eu is monistic it has a eu commission um which is which investigates um, and adjudicates and punishes um whereas the us has you know the jurisdiction is divided between the federal trade commission and the, the department of justice So I think that background is just to say that variation exists around the world, and we see the the South Asian re- region mirroring that kind of variation that exists around the world. So what we have in these eight countries are very, not very, but you know, quite different models of competition enforcement. So India and Pakistan are actually very close; they are almost identical model of competition enforcement. Both have a. Um, competition commission which is formed as an independent body in in india it's known as the competition commission of india in pakistan it's the competition commission of pakistan orders of the competition commissions of india and pakistan are uh, appealable before tribunals 
uh, India used to have the competition appellate tribunal up until uh, 2017, I believe, uh, and it was then replaced by the National uh, Company Law Appellate Tribunal, the NCLAT, uh, which is now also the tribunal that hears uh, competition appeals. Pakistan did not have a competition appellate tribunal for the first three years or so of its uh, of the of the life of the law. But in 2010, it adopted adopted the legal uh, provision for establishing a competition appellate tribunal. There have been issues whether that appellate tribunal has always been, you know, had quorum or not to hear cases. But but that is the route that if you have a decision of the commission, it can be appealed to the tribunal. And if people are dissatisfied with the decision of the tribunal, then that can be appealed to the Supreme Courts of India or Pakistan, depending on which country you're in. That's one model. The uh, Bangladeshi model is similar but different. So the Bangladeshi model uh, also has a competition commission of Bangladesh, but um, you know there are certain orders that it can't pass, certain criminal order, uh, uh, you know, certain sort of criminal matters that can be reviewed, cannot be reviewed. So there is a very different model in Bangladesh. Nepal has a very completely different model. It has. the uh, it doesn't have an independent authority for competition it has a government department and the it has a what they call a market protection officer and the market protection officer can basically bring a case to the court so instead of adjudicating itself it it can bring a case to the court which sounds more like the US FTC model um Sri Lanka has the Consumer Affairs Authority as i mentioned in my introduction uh, to the book as well the Consumer Affairs Authority has a wider ambit it looks at much big you know bigger b- issues beyond i should say not bigger but beyond competition it's looking at trade it's looking at consumer welfare again more of an ftc model um, than a than a than a sort of standalone competition authority um it can pass some orders but as i mentioned earlier it has not passed orders yet so what we see is a tremendous variation uh, in the region and um we see different relationships between the competition authority or the board and the pre-existing um setup in the country um but the final point to, to take away from this is that that's okay having different models is okay that's not a problem but i think understanding what your model is and then understanding where the interventions are required to make it work is really the focus of my thinking not what the model is uh, but yes variations exist sure man thank you so much for enlightening us about this very particular question of mine with respect to south asia versus other jurisdictions uh, we have discussed this in previous episode also but we have seen certain updates in the jurisdictions with respect to india we see that yesterday on 29th march competition amendment bill was passed by the lower house of the parliament and this put uh, make an upgrade to the competition law of india bring a lot of changes to the existing act and we might see certain amendments in other jurisdictions not sure of other south asian countries you might be uh, better able to comment on it but we see mostly uh, application of competition law in india and pakistan uh, when we hear about the cases or court orders or judgments from uh, even supreme court of both the countries uh, with respect to this can you please also highlight the objectives of the book and uh, secondly the research methodology adopted in the book so that the audience can understand uh, these perspectives uh, in a better way Yes thank you Aditya that's a, a 
you know quite a sort of vast question um certainly the indian amendments have been in the offing since 2020 i think there was a you know the draft bill was there and the, the before that there was a committee to study what kind of recommendations should be made uh, the competition law review committee made its recommendations then the bill was debated and now of course uh, it's been passed by the lower house so i think there's hope that we will actually see the the law amended very very shortly um it's certainly been a long time coming and i think india uh, has a presence you know sort of is host to a large uh, digital platforms uh, amazon and google uh, have had their cases in india as well recently we've had a the the supreme court of india has endorsed uh, the decision uh, the google decision also uh, but it has uh, i think it's amended some remedies uh, so india i think is really leading when it comes to the, the understanding the significance of the digital economy and how that might how competition can play a role in 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 harn you know managing the digital economy so i think uh, india is definitely ahead of that um india has also adopted or at least working on adopting a proper privacy regime as well because what happens with the digital economy is that these digital platforms are are uh, collecting data and india is already thinking about you know what what do we want to do with this data um i think there's some critique there as well that india's uh, privacy regime is not you know it is sort of patchwork a little bit uh, it's not you know holistic it's sort of involving uh, too many layers so i think that would be another area that i think india would be uh, putting its emphasis on and, and looking at that so i think it's a two pronged and we see both these things coming together um pakistan is also thinking about it now what is very interesting where these countries have actually been um weaker i would say in in enforcing competition law where they are quite strong is in thinking about the digital economy so every single country has um looked at digitalization of different aspects of the society and uh, certainly e-commerce policies are, uh, are around different countries allow a different kind of e-commerce uh, transactions whether it's uh, you know b2b or b2c um even smaller countries like nepal have a lot of b2c um uh, trading but more on you know they don't allow cross border trade so i think we will see i i have a hope i should say i have a hope not even a feeling that india's sort of taking the bull by the horns and really moving um, you know quite sort of strongly into this sector will have an effect on the other south asian countries as well i know you mentioned that of course other countries throughout the world are thinking about this but since we are fo- focusing on the south asian region i think this will uh, affect the region as well and we will see greater sort of movement like i said there's already quite a bit i do cover this in my last chapter i talk about the digital uh, sort of impetus that is going to move competition the dial on competition forward as well so even though they've left it behind in the traditional economy perhaps to some extent but going forward with the digital economy uh, there will be different ways of thinking about it um what i found quite interesting when i was looking at this was also that um people the countries respond very differently to to digital platforms so uh, you know there is an that's true in india as well so within the country as well there might be a different there might be competing priorities so for instance you might think well i really want amazon or google to come in and work in my country because that will create jobs you know and if i'm going to really encourage google and amazon to come into my country maybe i'm going to turn a bit of a blind eye to their maybe data collection or maybe some anti competitive activities 
forget google and amazon maybe i want uber to come into my country this is actually a real case um a merger case in in pakistan which was about um right sharing apps and they they said but you know this is bringing foreign investment we're going to take a lighter view of this so i think competition enforcement or enforcement of the privacy regime even if the laws are there may not be uniformly applied because there are other competing priorities that governments have uh, which is encouraging uh, you know investment into their region so so let's see how this happens so it might we'll have to see whether it's raised to the bottom or raised to the top as we say in diffusion language which means that sometimes when one country such as india adopts strong laws that might be harsher on certain businesses then other countries might say well you know i'm going to keep myself weak so because that will attract more people to come to me or they might think well i need to have an equally strong law because that will make me more attractive to outsiders so i think we will have to see how that plays out i i think it's not it's not a guarantee that it will uh, move in in a particular direction but this is certainly an area to watch out and um, i think the fact it's not a surprise that india is leading on the digital side because uh, you know india's a very big players one of the top 10 for the for the b2 uh b2c and b2b uh, sales as well uh, throughout the world so it was in the digital economy report even a few years ago um so it's not a surprise that india is making that move but i think a little bit late to be fair but i think better late than never so so still very good that it's doing this uh the second mm-hmm. part of the question was about the the research methodology but let's see maybe you have another question and i can come back to the research methodology sure so i was just commenting and uh... Uh, thanking you for appreciating indian regime yes i also understand that it has been late because a lot of market developments were taking place since 2010 a lot of market openings were taking place uh, i have a very theoretical question in mind or uh, maybe you can call it philosophical but i understand that uh, south asian countries since they are culturally bound together they were not originally capitalist if we understand their history and we have a lot of social welfare legislation especially in india so when we talk about competition when we talk about opening of economies when we talk about privatization in india it has been the market is open since 1991 and not before that we all know the uh, history of it and uh, when we talk about uh, capitalism neoliberalism as it has been uh, talked recently do you think that uh, the south asian regimes have some reservations towards competition law or privatization as you has all, you have also discussed uh, competing priorities within the nations so do you uh, what do you uh, want to comment on this very perspective of reservations of south asian countries towards uh, competition law so that's a really interesting question um and uh, i do appreciate that you're looking at the history uh, especially indian history i think it has tried to you know the legal history and economic history has tried to always strike a balance between social objectives uh, and uh, and economic growth objectives uh, pakistan has been more capitalistic in its mindset maybe not in its culture but in its its uh, the leadership mindset has been more capitalistic i think it's been more aligned with um um uh, you know the western sort of neoliberal agenda uh, than india has been um in fact i think if you uh, you know when pakistan was made in 1947 there was this idea that 20 families there was this concept of 20 families which migrated 
um, from India to pa- what was British India at that time to Pakistan, and it was their money. So it was always that capitalist money that has fueled the economy, and we are still very much in that capitalist mindset. Maybe not in the society, but definitely in the in the legal regime. What I've noticed in India in the last, um, I would say, several years is that at the government level, India is now much more aligned with the capitalist neoliberal thinking as well. Um, and a very good example of that is, for instance, the you know the three farm laws that were introduced uh, and then repealed uh, a couple of years ago. They were very much in the sort of global economic agenda and not necessarily aligned with India's socialist thinking, which of course the the movement then the pushback was on the socialist uh, thinking that you know is it really good for people or is it good for economy, and the idea that they're two different things that what is good for the economy may not be good for the people, whereas in many countries might say well what is good for the economy will eventually be good for the people as well because we'll give them um, you know give them um, uh, livelihood, so I think. At this point, if we are to take the say, sort of the you know the Pakistani governments have been more capitalistic. I think now they're taking more of a socialist stance, but I think that's more rhetoric rather than reality. Um, India definitely much more capitalist, aligned with neoliberal thinking. Uh, I think in the, in the in fact that is one of the successes of the Modi regime, if I might say that. I think uh, that's how they pitch themselves. That's how they portray themselves. They're business friendly. They're investment friendly. They're trade friendly. And I think that's very much the image. Bangladesh, when they were adopting the law, had very serious reservations about social justice. And they said, look, this law, is it going to be good for our people? So, you know, they were delaying and desisting. But the law they adopted eventually is not making much of a concession to uh, to the sort of socialist idea. The probably big one area in which we see this reflected is what the idea of consumer welfare, which is a core idea of uh, all competition regimes. And when cons- competition law talks about consumer welfare, it is talking about uh, the economic idea of welfare, which in the neoliberal regime has been interpreted as price. You know, is the price high or low? If the price is low, it's welfare and if it's high it's not welfare but i think we've seen the competition authorities taking a broader especially in india and pakistan uh, maybe even bangladesh going forward is taking a broader view of what welfare means so a lot of indian decisions have not applied the economic idea in that economic sense but they've talked of consumer welfare in, in broader sort of you know co- almost consumer law terms rather than competition law terms so i think there we are seeing a little bit of a reflection uh, of the sort of socialist thinking that you know is it good for the people but my concern going i mean not a concern but it's a maybe even a good thing i i actually don't want to make that judgment but it's a good thing or a bad thing but i think the more the competition regimes align themselves with western models and are trained by you know unctad and you know they're trained by um uh, you know uh, usaid organizes um you know, uh, training uh, programs for competition uh, enforcement authorities in the region, and uh, UNCTAD does. And you know, the more this training uh, comes in and we respond to it, I think we will become more eco- aligned with the Western regimes and our economic ideals as well. So, will we become more capitalist-oriented? I think definitely the direction we are moving in suggests that we might. Will there be a clash and competing priorities within the? competition enforcement probably not will the country itself 
uh, say that these are not we are not aligned with these priorities perhaps um, do people even understand this to that extent um, it's difficult to say but i think that the culture of india and pakistan is becoming increasingly more capitalistic rather than less capitalistic so if the two big countries are anything to go by then i think uh, we will see that mirrored across the region as well certainly i agree with you in all the aspects and uh, we have a lot to talk about with respect to this uh, perspective but uh, keeping it uh, within the time frame of the podcast i would like to ask the last two questions so uh, please uh, let us know about the research methodology of the book and then we'll move to a, a conclusive a concluding question okay thank you aditya um so the research methodology was perhaps for me the most fun part uh, the difficult part as well and also the fun part um so as i mentioned right at the outset that you know the 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 first chapter deals with the theoretical framework i needed to understand what laws or what literatures what theories can i use to uh, to to read to study this link between adoption process and enforcement uh, of competition laws so my starting point was um the you know legal transplant literature i looked at comparative law legal transplant literature which basically talked about the fact that context of the host country that's adopting a law makes a big difference it didn't go into too much depth of what how that context impacts the legal development the development of a law it talked about compatibility but didn't say how compatibility was um generated could it be enhanced um uh, you know and or exactly how does this compatibility then affect the implementation stage so i turned to the literature of diffusion and policy transfer i looked at um, new institutional economics so i studied these different uh, strategies which were emulation laws adopted through emulation which means just by copying other laws through socialization which means you are actually making an effort to study the laws and to decide whether they are better for you or not uh, coercion uh, which meant that the law is you know you basically the imf tells you this is a conditionality of a loan you either adopt the, you know you they persuade you they don't command you they persuade you to adopt the law and then another strat- strategy for adoption or mechanism for adoption might be regulatory competition that you know you see other countries adopting a law near you and you think I should also adopt it um and then different kind of institutions that you might engage so for instance you might have bottom up participatory uh, institutions for instance india we had the raghavan committee that met and discussed this law for two years and went through parliament so at least we can we don't want to talk about the quality of uh, those discussions but i think certainly the idea was that you know whatever we are doing we should do it with a consensus and a discussion um or you can have very exclusive top down uh, method institutions through which the law is adopted which is that um you know the the government just decides beyond behind closed doors and introduces the law through an ordinance which is what happened in pakistan so i looked at all of this you know the, the theory of this and what this said is that a law can be successful if it is adopted through bottom up participatory inclusive institutions because they have the capacity to aggregate knowledge from the society and bring it to inform the law and such a law then becomes uh, a law in action and it can be understood applied and utilized in the country and it can interact productively with the country's pre-existing legal system so with all these three literatures in hand i developed and what i call an integrated 
uh, analytical framework which means i divided the adoption process into three stages uh, the deliberation stage the ad- formal adoption or enactment stage and then finally the interpretation and enforcement stage and what i did was i took elements from each of these three literatures and i mapped them onto this process and i said how can we give depth to the um uh, you know to the to the process of adoption so for instance at the deliberation stage we looked at the pre-existing 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 sorry conditions and the nature and range of the legal institutions that existed in the country and uh, looked at what kind of motivations existed what kind of transfer strategy uh, they were uh, hoping to develop so that happened all at the deliberation stage um and you can see that that's borrowing from diffusion and transfer literature as well as um uh, legal transplant literature it's also looking at new development economics literature just to give depth to the deliberation stage the same idea was carried through to the formal enactment stage again looking at the nature and range of institutions which is a new development new institution economics idea and um also looking at the diffusion and transfer literature to see whether the strategy whether it was if let's say it was you're emulating at the deliberation stage are you continuing with emulation or have you now started socializing the law so it's really studying that in depth and finally at the enforcement stage um again uh, you know looking at uh the the benchmarks for success which had come from the legal transplant literature so actually examining the enforcement to see um you know is the law being utilized by the public how is it being applied how is it being understood what is its interaction with the pre-existing authorities so really using those benchmarks from the legal transplant literature to study uh, the interpretation and enforcement stage so that was one part of the methodology which was the developing the research the analytical framework the second part was the data what do i study it through and the data i used for my research were decisions of the indian and pakistani competition authorities and courts uh, related to competition over a 10 year period um so implementation in pakistan started in 2008 so we went from 2008 to 12 year period i would say 2008 to 2020 and in india which actually adopted a law much earlier the implementation was also delayed till 2009 and then uh 2009 to 2020 so we had a good 10 year period over which to compare and see uh you know developed i developed indicators so i went into um, each sort of enforcement decision and i picked up different aspects of it for instance was it filed on the basis of a complaint was it filed on the basis of a so motor notice um and what that meant then so for instance if a law is always being applied through suo moto notices which means that the competition authority is itself taking notice then it means that the public is not in adopting the law or or utilizing the law but it's only the authority imposing the law whereas if it is coming up through complaints that means it has a broader sort of social understanding in the society and people are coming forward um similarly i looked at um how the you know indicator was one indicator of each decision was how many foreign judgments does it cite uh if the case if it if we come up with the idea that a certain competition authority is constantly utilizing foreign judgments even to say even to establish its authority over the people for instance that's what we saw in pakistan that 
it, a lot of decisions would start by saying well this law is based on article 81 and 82 of the tfeu uh, sorry the ec treaty as it then was and we are imposing this you know we are we have very pedigree which can be traced back to the us and the eu so that kind of citing so that was then seen as the authority claiming the international lineage and not seeking to align itself enough with the the domestic context in india we didn't see any of that happening it was always much more about this the situation this is the law um so so you know that was one indicator you know how is this the adoption process is it influencing how we interpret the law as well are we more embedded locally or are we looking to uh internationally to understand the law so there were 10 indicators i developed um and i studied the indian and pakistani enforcement strategy broken down into 10 indicators across 10 years so it was quite a mammoth uh, empirical analysis and i think that provided some really interesting insights as well which i hope if you read the book uh, you will find uh, interesting uh, and then one of the sort of the core um, method the factor that i was studying was the extent of compatibility and legitimacy so examine the adoption stage through these methods as i mentioned to see whether it could be said to have generated compatibility and legitimacy and then examine the interpretation or enforcement stage to see how that compatibility and legitimacy plays out in the enforcement is it does, is it making a difference or is it not making a difference uh, so this will be if you if you want it in the book it's it's you will see all of this in chapters 4 to 4 6 4 5 6 and 7 of the book right thank you so much ma'am for telling us about the research methodology i really appreciate the depth of the research and uh, uh, if the audience and the people read the book then they would exactly know all these eight countries the south asian countries their perspective towards competition law and that's i think that the objective of the book is to uh, make people aware about the law and also the academicians and forces and the lawyers i would say and uh, lastly i would like to ask you a question that are these countries really prepared to the challenges that we face in digital markets uh, we understand that this debate is ongoing and even mature jurisdiction lot of issues with respect to digital markets or say uh, even we have web3 now we have a lot of technological updates now when these acts were enacted in 2002 or 2007 8 yeah. or 2012 or even some in 2020 as you as pointed out a lot of technological upgradations were not there and now the markets have completely changed and the law also has to be updated but we see that uh, some of the countries in south asia haven't even developed the preliminary or foundational stage of competition law or uh, primarily the enforcement side of it so uh, lastly your, your comments on are these countries uh, uh, excluding india and pakistan are other countries the six of them prepared to the challenges in digital markets and how open are they to the digital markets yeah that's a obviously the question for the you know the, the sort of hot question which has the most relevance today and and going forward as well the answer unfortunately is that i don't think we are well prepared as a region at all um i mean again leaving out india and pakistan we've talked about them already they're still making some efforts to be better prepared 
Uh, the other countries are also making efforts, as I mentioned earlier. They are, you know, they've all set up, uh, you know, digital uh, committees or bodies to study the different aspects. But we are, I think, a lot of this depends on how much these countries are engaged in the digital economy as well. So I think we have to also see digital penetration and digital entrepreneurship in these countries. Now, India may have very high digital penetration and digital entrepreneurship. Certainly, we are seeing quite a bit of it in Pakistan in different sectors as well. But it's at a small scale in Pakistan. India, I think, is playing with the big players. In the other six countries, you know, let's leave, Af- let's leave Afghanistan and Bhutan out of it. Um, I think it's very limited. I, I think it's very localized. Let's put it, you know, so what I see with the digital economy penetration is that it's localized. It's not as international facing. Um, and maybe that is the reason why they don't feel the need to uh, develop this area very much. Um, but that I think would be a mistake to to leave it too late. So I think it is, it is important to uh, to to focus on this and to bring it up to speed because there is a potential, you know, there's a potential for development in these countries through the digital economy, which maybe they've not been able to harness through the traditional economy. So I think that to you to, to, to take advantage of that opportunity, it's also important to bring your laws up to speed so that you can then compete at an international level um, uh, and, and, and yet safeguard your own interests as well. So one can only end with a note of hope. As I mentioned earlier, I think there is some hope from platforms like Daraz, for instance, which is actually operating in several different countries. And, um, and I think the, 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 the uh, amendments in uh, the Indian law will actually see more activity in the region as well on the digital side. So I think the future is definitely to watch out for. It's interesting. Thank you so much.